Spirit of Living God, fall fresh now on this group, this gathered body of believers, and on this preacher. Amen. Friends, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the church, were delivered from Egypt and the enslavement of Pharaoh. Aaron led them to the land of promise that God had sought out for them. Not long after they settled in there, the people wanted an earthly leader. Like everyone else around them had kings. They wanted a visible earthly king. God warned them against this. God wanted them to look to God as their leader, to maintain a strict relationship with God. But much like some of our children, they whine, but everyone else has an earthly king. God being a God of free will, allow them to anoint Saul as king. Well, even a casual reading of the Old Testament will reveal the church began a downhill slide at that point. The entirety of the rule of the kings is summed up in the story of Jezebel, which you heard some of last week. In 1 Kings 21, 1 through 16, the Naboth, one of God's saints, owned a vineyard really close to King Ahab's palace in the city of Jezreel. Because of this, Ahab wanted to acquire the vineyard so he could use it for, for vegetables or perhaps a herb garden. Since Naboth had, exam- had inherited the land from his ancestors, he refused to sell it. And because he had inherited from his ancestors, he could not be obligated to sell it. Well, Ahab married Jezebel to make peace with the Canaanites. When they wanted to establish a peace treaty with one nation or the other, if the king of that nation had a son or daughter that they could marry to the other king, then they would perform a treaty that will allow them to have peace among themselves. The problem is Jezebel was a Canaanite who grew up all of her life worshiping the cult god Baal, the god of the earth, the god of plants. Jezebel, being the daughter of a Phoenician king, understood the role of kings. In Canaanite culture, kings didn't ask for stuff. If they wanted, they took it. So the idea of a king honoring Naboth and saying that I don't want to sell so he's not going to sell Ahab couldn't imagine taking the land but Jezebel was a better king than Ahab because she had been trained in the Canaanite royal palace you are king if you want it take it Ahab listened to his wife, and, and, and according to the count in First and Second Kings, at that point, he allowed the cult god of Baal to be introduced into the Israelite kingdom. 
she was despised from that point. Now, I don't despise Jezebel. Jezebel did what Jezebel did. She grew up in a palace. When she was married to a king, she knew how to be married to a king. She raised all of her life to be married to a king. Ahab was under the obligation by God to stick to the ways of Yahweh, the God of all people. As a result, nobody has named their child Jezebel down through history. She has been named as a shameless, unmoral person and blamed for Israelites going astray and the church worshiping other deities. Well, finally, after God got tired of trying to get the people to return, come back to where you belong, floods and everything, he came in the form of Jesus Christ to lead the church back where they belong himself. Jesus introduced himself to Israel and Judaism as the son of the living God. Jesus came to the church, the chosen ones, God's people, who should have recognized him as being the one sent from God. But their leaders, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees and scribes, had amassed so much power and so much wealth, and they were so controlled by the Roman greed that they led the church astray and they weren't about to let Jesus upset the apple cart. God's chosen church, Israel, rejected Jesus' claim as being the son of God. And they convinced the Roman powers that he had to be crucified because he is a known troublemaker. Jesus started a movement within Judaism to reform and revive the church. Jesus came to the church to preach and instill to them, come back to your first love. Come back to God. At the same time, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness asking people to repent, come back to God. God became one of us in Jesus to lead the people back to their intended purpose to spread the word throughout the land that it, this is God's world and God loves them. The church crucified Jesus. They convinced the Roman government that he needed to die. Jesus died and was resurrected in three days and presented himself to those very same disciples in a locked upper room and gave them charge to go into all the world, making disciples teaching them the things that he had taught them, namely the good news that God loves you and God wants you to live a life that represents God. Those 12 men continued a movement within Judaism that was established by Jesus. They were so on fire about the message that they had seen and heard in Jesus that they literally changed the world. They went out and began to witness in the power of God that they witnessed through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They had witnessed Jesus raising folks from the dead. They had witnessed how Jesus could change your life. One of the Pharisees finally got the message of God in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul began to be a part of the movement. 
Jesus began a movement. Paul organized a church. And in Revelations, we are a minimum of 20 or 30 years away from the death of Jesus Christ. Paul organized a church who went into the heart of cult sinners, into the heart of Ephesus, into the heart of Pergamon, into the heart of Smyrna, into the heart of Thyatira, and now in the heart of Cyrus. And they didn't plant church on the outskirts of the city. They were so bold in the Lord that they planted churches right next to cultural God's temple and said to the people around them, our God is the one true living God. They were so bold that they planted churches next to the shrines of cultural deities. John, the apostle and one-time bishop of Pergamon, called the leaders as they were slipping now into ways of past, called the leaders and congregants to, ex- ex- to not be ingrained and not be compromised by the culture around them, but stay firm in Christ. As a result, he was banished to a rock, an island we call Patmos, dead in the middle of the Aegean Sea. But God strategically planted him there. It was a place where military leaders would intersect. It was a place where people from all over the world would dock from ships on their way to Asia Minor, first to Ephesus, and then on up the coast. John writing down what Jesus had dictated to him, scribed it in messages, in little notes, that when people saw it, they would thought it was the writings of a madman. Only the church people who understood the Old Testament, people who were familiar with the ways of God, would be able to interpret and understand what John was saying. The message was to the seven churches. The seven churches should have understood what John was writing because they were steep deep in God. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Once a year, the people were called together to worship Caesar as Lord. The Romans were beautiful tacticians. When they conquered a culture, they would allow the traditions of that culture to assimilate into Roman culture. They would even allow their religions to become a part of Roman religion as long as they didn't upset the status quo. They allowed the folk to bring their, no matter how radical their religious beliefs, into culture as long as they obeyed Caesar as Lord. The seven churches planted itself in towns, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, the areas that were known strongholds of cultural worship, the known strongholds where people worship little gods. But the church's mission was and is to bring people into the body of Christ by introducing them to a Savior that changes lives from the inside out. The church that has been allowed into the Roman culture now began to assimilate and become a part of the secular culture. 
Ephesus lost its first love, Smyrna losing faith, Pergamon now on the brink of destruction. Thyatira began to worship the cultural God just like Jezebel introduced. The Christian church was losing its identity. It was losing its purpose. It was losing its reason for existing. It was losing its authority. It was not useful to people anymore. We exist to be the living embodiment of Jesus Christ and to teach people to live an uncompromising message that Jesus is Lord. The church has sought us, a rich community, steeped in long tradition. They had untold wealth. But yet Jesus says to them, wake up, strengthen what remains, and that is about to die. Sardis, 50 miles east of Smyrna, 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor. But their God was a pagan God. Their God soon became wealth and fame. Their God soon became a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Sardis had had magnificent structures around them. They planted the church, the early believers, right next to the temple of Artemis. Its people worshiped Artemis, the mother God, which included doing all sorts of immoral things, festivals that were held in her honor. Jesus tells John, you write this to the angel. To the angel of the church at Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits, seven leaders, seven priests, seven pastors, seven stars. The churches were meant to be light in a dark world. Those seven churches were to be shining like stars. I hold the church, Jesus said. No cultural God, no earthly person. I hold the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. The contrast from the word alive and dead is stinging coming from God. Wake up. You see, they did everything that was required of them by the rules of the church. On the outside, they looked good. They came to worship. They offered sacrifices. They supported all the local missions. But not wanting to rock the boat, they also began to support the local cult gods. And that fever and that vim and that variety, veracity that made them so dynamite that they would have the nerve to plant a church right next to a temple of Artemis. By this time, that zeal, that fire 
was now gone. That fire to be on fire for Jesus, for Jesus I live and for Jesus I die was gone. They looked like the church. They smelled like the church. But they were not acting like the church. The church's sole mission, wherever we find ourselves, is to stand up in a dark world and say, Jesus is Lord. I don't care about what you worship and how you worship. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Wake up, he says to them in the second verse. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I found your deeds and I don't find them as doing what God has commanded you to do. You're doing good things. You're supporting the local charities. You're doing everything that you're supposed to. But spiritually, you're dead. You're not happy about being in the body of Christ. You're not excited about welcoming people. And you're not excited about telling the world about who your God is. You're not on fire about telling people that in my belly I'm a changed person because I met Jesus Christ. You are alive in duties but dead to the responsibilities that you have been given and commanded by God to go into all the world preaching and teaching. Wake up. A better translation would be, watch yourself. You're in danger of losing who you are in Christ. They were like the five virgins who took the lamps, who took their lamps to meet the bridegroom, but they didn't take no oil. What good is a lamp without oil? In the, Holy, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is represented by oil. When the bridegroom came, they were ready. But they didn't have any light for Christ. Jesus says, wake up. We must be ready for Christ's return. When you read the end of the book, we know he's coming back. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for me. Let's complete the work that God has assigned us to do. We are on this hill and our church name Calvary because God wants us to be a light, a lamp. Where when the city of Bloomington Normal looks at us, they see the light of Christ shining through us. In the grocery stores, at Menards, in the park, wherever you find yourself as individuals and corporately as the church, you represent God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and what you have heard. Obey it and repent. Remember, when you first discovered how much God loved you. Remember when you first joined the church and you grew up in the church and you saw people that were on fire for God. Remember how you would deny yourself whatever it took to please God because your whole existence was to do the mission of God. Remember when you would have endured anything for the sake 
of Jesus Christ. Remember when you first heard the gospel and you discovered that Jesus saved even a wretch like you and you didn't want nobody in this world not to hear that message because everybody deserved the joy of the Lord that you have in your heart. Remember how when you first found out the gospel of salvation that God loved us so much that he entered the world? Remember? 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 Get back excited not about your wealth not about what your funds could do not about looking good but get excited about Jesus Christ being a part of the world don't look at the news stations and begin to think that the world is doomed look to me I'm in the land I will never forsake you it may be tough church but you're not in this by yourself It may be tough, church, but I didn't intend for you to fight the battle. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come. Jesus was saying, see the writing on the wall. The message of Revelations is this. There are basically two people that they're writing this to, and both of them are in the church. One of them are in the church, and they have been led astray from their soul-given mission. The others have did everything they could, and they remain faithful to God. And their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There were a few people in Sardis that had not compromise with the world. They were going to inherit white garments that indicated their holiness. They're setting apart their lives for Christ. White robes are worn by the multitude when we get to heaven in chapter 7. White clothing are worn by the armies of heaven who accompany Christ when Christ returns. He who overcomes will be dressed like them dressed and clothed with the righteousness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that we have done that cannot be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing that we find ourselves a part of that God cannot reclaim us back. Sardis was defiled. And they were about to die. But how many of you know that God always have a ram in the bush? There's always somebody in God's church. You remember when um, the Soviet Union, it was was against their, their law to practice Christianity. When that wall finally fell down. They discovered that hiding in the basements, in the alleyways of that country were Christian men and women who were willing to read their Bibles and willing to be be in the world and represent Jesus Christ, even though they could have been killed just for reading the book. God always has a remnant, somebody that we can look to and be reminded of whose we are and who we are. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church Friends, we all need to hear 
and understand what is being said. The world will lead you astray. It will cause you to believe that there is a substitute for Jesus. It will have you more interested in houses and land than the mission of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will not play second fiddle to any orchestra arrangement in our lives. Jesus will not be second string quarterback in any game of life. Jesus will not be an understudy in the unfolding drama which is called life. Jesus demands to have first place in our lives. There can be no substitute for Jesus. You see, in our world, we're used to substitutes. We substitute margarine for butter, but there's no substitute for Jesus. We substitute nylon for silk, but there's no substitute for Jesus. We, we substitute saccharin for sugar, but there's no substitute for Jesus. New salt for old salt, but no substitute for Jesus. And in my house, we thought mackerels were salmons. But there's no substitute for Jesus. E85 gasohol instead of gasoline, but no substitute for Jesus. Friends, you might take Cremora rather than pet milk, but there's no substitute for Jesus. Every child of God has to know that Jesus claims the number one spot in our lives. Without him, I would be nothing. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. Without him, I would surely have failed in my life. Without him, I would be drifting aimlessly like a ship without a sail. Without him, I would have fallen prey to the world's victories and the world's things of power, but with him. I understand that if I have nothing according to the world's standards, I have everything because I have Christ in my lives. Calvary. You are a city on a hill that no bushel basket should be allowed to put out. Wake up. Wake up and hear what the Spirit says to the church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that we are weak, but you are strong. Left to ourselves, we would fold because it's too difficult to live down here without you. But we are your church, bought with the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And we who sit in this room can point to many witnesses who have stood up in our lives and reminded us, like we remind Addison and Alexis, that when they see us, they're looking into the mind of Christ. Strengthen us with the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray.
Amen.